We are uh, wrapping up our Better Together teaching series today. Next week, we're going to do a, kind of a one-off message on gratitude, which will be very timely uh, right before Thanksgiving. And it's interesting how gratitude is one of the main things that increases our joy and plays into joy as we've been understanding not only the theology of joy, but the neuroscience of that through this Better Together series. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving begins our traditional uh, historical uh, Christmas series. We do five Sundays in a row leading up to Christmas Eve, and uh, we're going to be following the themes of Advent this year, so joy and peace and love and hope, and excited about that. So be in prayer over that. We're excited to see what God has for us. I'm seeing uh, the Coopers, and I'm thinking Natalie just ran the New York Marathon. I hear she was under four hours, so shout out to the Coopers. Yeah. I hear that she had a friend that was photographing her as she crossed the finish line. She's got this big old smile, and she's just like, like only Natalie could finish, you know, a, a New York marathon and just be coming in like, yeah, that, what's next, you know, so <laughs> pretty cool, pretty cool. We're going to be in a lot of different passages today. Uh, um, I'm going to have you turn to Galatians, though, early on, so if uh, you don't know where that is, I'll give you some time to find it. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go everywhere preaching Christ, uh, go eat popcorn, however you remember it, but we're going to be there in a few minutes. I love this quote by Bob Goff. Bob Goff has written a lot of kind of humorous books, but he's got a real depth to him as well. He said, the challenge of spiritual growth is that our problem with following Jesus is that we are trying to be a better version of ourselves rather than a more accurate reflection of him. Friends, spiritual growth is not about being a better one of us. It's not being our best us, because our best us is still <laughs> wretched. It's about being a more accurate reflection of him, and we don't do that except through the Holy Spirit and his empowering. Hopefully this Better Together series has helped you to learn a lot of practical stuff that you've been able to combine with your biblical knowledge and as you process that, it is leading toward spiritual growth and maturity in your life. I know that it has done that for me. I've learned a lot of really cool stuff here in terms of the, the science of how the brain works that I haven't considered before, and that's been wonderful. Hopefully, you've learned that this Better Together series has been about the value of Christian community versus a lone ranger approach to Christianity where we kind of just do it on our own independently. Uh, as Americans, we can be very independently minded and think, you know, I just got to do it myself and can't rely and lean upon anybody else. But uh, God has designed us for community. He had us born into families, and the whole body language of Scripture reinforces and lifts that up. Hopefully, you've learned the power of engaging both of our minds and our hearts when we come before the Lord, when we approach His Word, when we try and serve Him and follow Him. And also, hopefully, you've learned about what it means to engage all of our mind, all of our brain, specifically because um, most of us don't use the right side of our brain, and discovering that the right side of our brain is responsible for character formation, for identity, and spiritual growth, that's huge. And so as we can try and train the right side of our mind and engage it and do exercises that develop it, uh, that really helps, and I'm going to talk about a few more of those exercises as we get into this. Throughout this series, too, we've been lifting up four different uh, 
transformation catalysts, joy, and hesed agape community. Hesed and agape is a Hebrew word and a Greek word that, as we said numerous times in the series, cannot be defined by any one English word because they mean so many different things, mercy and grace and unconditional love and loving kindness, and all, they're all bundled into that. And so a Hesed Agape community is a community that models and, and nurtures grace and love and mercy in us. And so having that, then our group identity, then a healthy correction. All of these things are, and we're going to unpack that today and we're going to review that because I hope that today is not review as much as it is. These are the takeaways. These are the things that we want to reinforce because the big picture here is not just us as individuals applying these things and doing these things, but what does it mean for CBC to be a community of joy, of transformation? What does it mean for CBC to be a, a community where our group identity in Christ is constantly reinforced and brought back into focus? What does it mean for us to be people that practice healthy correction, of drawing people out of shame and uh, journeying together with them into the Father's presence and back into fellowship with Him, not reaching out to people with an air of superiority or a self-righteousness, but, hey man, I, I'm in the same boat as you are. We're both flawed, we're both broken, and together we're going to find wholeness and restoration in the Father's arms and just journeying that together. And then also, everything that we've been learning is just... It, as we get ready next year to launch a, a comprehensive discipleship program here at CBC, this is the very way that we want to do it. Because discipleship is not just about the truths and the knowledge and the information that we'll be learning and imparting, but it's the way that we do it. It's the relationships that we form. And so this Better Together series has been really about that and forming what that looks like. So Galatians 4.19, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today, but just this one verse I want to use as kind of a launch pad for our review today. Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Oh, my dear children, I feel as though I am going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. We could unpack this for the next hour, and maybe sometime we will do that, but there's a lot of things that strike me about this verse. One is that so many of us are struggling to just keep our own head above water, that we, we don't even have the privilege or the ability to look to the needs of other people. We're just trying to make it ourselves. We're trying to survive. We're trying to get by, and the Apostle Paul models for us not what it looks like to be an apostle of Jesus, to be a superhuman Christian leader. The Apostle Paul really models for us what we've been talking about in Better Together series, is that Philippians 2, do not look out merely for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not neglect your own needs, but we know that we all take care of ourselves. Above and beyond that, have a heart and uh, focus on other people as well. And then Christ is the model, who didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and was obedient to the point of death. He is our model. He is the one that has shown us and, and been an example for us of what that means. But 
Paul has this, this other's focus, and there's a connection there. Notice the language, my dear children. Not, hey, you sorry losers. You know, do I have to write you again and remind you of what it means to live a Christian life? No. You're family to me. You're, you're like spiritual children. I've led you to the Lord, and I want to see you not, not just get by, but I want to see you cross the finish line. I, I want to present you before the Lord as jewels in my crown. I, I, want to, I love that phrase. I want to see Christ fully formed in you. Think about the people sitting around you right now. Maybe some of them you, you didn't even know before you came into church today. What would it take for you to have that kind of a, 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 a heart and a, a burden that the people around you would, would come to know Christ fully and be fully formed into his image? I, I told you a story years ago, long story short, it was about a missionary who taught an African tribe to play croquet. And uh, again, long story short, I'm butchering it just to get to the point because we don't have the time this morning, but he found that as each one of them completed the game and finished, they would go back and help others and instruct them about shots or techniques, whatever. And when everybody finished, they all said, we won, we won. And this missionary was struck by our kind of American individualistic, we're like, I beat all you guys. Like a lot of guys at the men's, retreat, men's uh, event yesterday, like, I am so much better than you in archery or ping pong or bowling or dart throwing or all the things. But here was a group of people that were so community family minded that when they finished, they said, we won, we won. And folks, that's a picture of what it means someday to enter into the Lord's presence. It's not about, I made it, Sweet. It's about I made it, and I brought my wife and my kids with me. I brought my wife and my kids with me, and I brought my neighbors, and I brought my coworkers, and I brought the people that I sit together with in church who are part of my Hesed Agape community. It's about having a view that extends beyond us to others and a burden that they not, they not only know Christ, but that they be fully formed in him. And he, he talks about that. I, I'm in labor pains, like... This isn't kind of a mild, no, this is something that is coursing throughout my body that until this happens, I feel like I am in labor, you know, give me drugs because the pain is too much type, you know, there's so much imagery here and that we might have that kind of heart and passion as we think about being a community that is formed in Christ's image. As we launch into this discipleship program next year. It's more than a program. It's, it's, it's kind of our marching orders and, and our ministry that we do until the Lord returns. But, but again, it's not about a, a download of information. It's about seeing Christ formed in each other. And not just about, hey man, look at how I'm doing. Look at how much I'm learning. Look at how good, you know, but wow, together, you know, this is amazing in having that mind. So what a great verse to think about as we, as we review the takeaways of our series. We began our series early on by talking about joy, and we redefine joy as when we are in the presence of those who are delighted to see us and delighted to be with us and all that that means. That neurologically, joy is communicated through the eyes and through, and through the voice <clears throat> and how powerful that is. As we greet other people, <clears throat> the importance of having good eye contact 
rather than kind of looking at other people and, yeah, yeah, hey, you know, but being dialed into the people that we're talking with and how that has the ability to raise their joy. And as we increase joy in others, we can do that through just saying, you know, the things that we appreciate about them or the things that we love about them or what we find special about them. And filling other people with joy fuels their brain for even more relational energy. So that, that's like the key component to building community. It's not just the ministry that we do together or the stuff that we learn, but it's building joy in other people by affirming who they are in Christ and how much we love them and what we see special about them. All of that fuels them for more relationships. And we talked about this in relationship with God, and we talked about the fact that throughout the Old Testament, the word presence and face are, are the same thing. So literally, in your presence is fullness of joy, in your face is fullness of joy. I told you about the Psalms 38 through 42. You can do a word study on this, but face and countenance and presence are all the same. And David is downcast. He's disillusioned. He's discouraged. Then he comes into the presence of the Lord. He does a face-to-face with God, and it transforms and changes his countenance to one of, uh, from despair to joy, from one of disillusionment to hope. And how that has a physiological uh, ability to transform not only our situation, but our very countenance. And so the power of seeing uh, verses like number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. How this is the neurological definition of joy. God looking upon you and beaming with pride, the pride of a heavenly father, because he's so joyful that uh, someone created in his image is, is his child, and, and he delights in that. Uh, another way that we could interpret this would be, made, you feel the joy of God's face shining on you because he's delighted to be with you. And for many of us, that was just like too much. I can't comprehend that God would be delighted by my presence or seeing me. But that's the truth. And hopefully our community and our friends help reinforce that, wow, if they're delighted to be with me and they find joy, then maybe I can believe in a God who is delighted to have my presence as well. We also learned that the right side of our brain processes information at the speed of six times per second. And so it's really more than we can kind of process words in that time frame. And so how, how essential and vital images are, pictures, examples, images, things that are modeled for us, because in those moments of crisis, uh, in, in those uh, instantaneous points of decision, it's not the information or the principles or the words as much as it's images. And so we talked about three transformational images. For me, it's like the image of a child being born. Most of us remember... A, a, of us who are parents remember the birth of all of our kids and the joy that was associated with that. Those of you who are married remember the joy of courtship, the joy of you know standing at the altar if, if you're a man and watching your bride walk down the aisle and being completely undone by that. You know, it's seared in your mind forever. And then so the image of birth, the image of courtship and marriage, and then the image that awaits is the second coming, when one day we see the Lord face to face. 
and we're transformed in, the, in, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And we're perfected into his perfect image because we shall be like him for we will see him just as he is. And Paul reminds us, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we all with unveiled face right now are being transformed by, into God's image, moment by moment, grace by grace. And so that's what it means to be together in this process of being fully formed into God's image. And as we talk about joy, we, we acknowledge the reality that just having joy as a Christian doesn't mean that the pain in our life goes away. It doesn't negate the pain. It doesn't take the pain away. But it does give us the ability to, to have strength and to endure through the pain. It helps us regulate our emotions in, in, in that way. And we use the example of Jesus that's given for us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. So Jesus, for the joy set before him, and we've talked about that before, like what joy could lay before Jesus that he didn't have before? I mean, he was God before he came to earth. It wasn't like he achieved divinity. He was already divine before. What joy lay before him? And we have proposed and uh, kind of thrown out there that, well, our, our reconciliation with the Father, that we were restored back to relationship with God through the cross. That was the joy that lay before him, reunification of the family, sinners brought back into fellowship with the holy God. And he, that's why he endured the cross. That's why he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. That was his whole purpose in coming. So because joy is relational, we understand that staying with, connected with God and with others is, is vitally important because that's what helps us share the pain together, share the load in times of distress because uh, God and our community don't allow us to suffer alone, to suffer in silence. I love what Jim Wilder, one of the authors of that other half of church book that the staff and I were reading, he says, when we're in the when we're the sparkle in someone's eyes, their face lights up with a smile when they see us. We feel joy. From the moment that we're born, joy shapes the chemistry, structure, and growth of our brain. Joy lays the foundation for how well we handle relationships, emotions, pain, pleasure throughout our lifetime. Joy creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. I love this. Joy gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and others. Expressing our joyful identity creates space for others to belong. So as we are vulnerable and express our joyful identity, that is an invitation for others to come and belong because it's a way of saying, I have space, I have room in my life for you. I'm not so overwhelmed and consumed with my own. No, I come, come join me. I love that, that image there. Joy gives us the freedom to live without masks because in spite of our weaknesses, we know that we're loved. Therefore, we're not afraid of our vulnerabilities or of exposure. That's the thing that drives people to isolation, fear of exposure. You know, I don't want to go public because someone's going to discover the sham that I am, the lie that I've been living. 
And when the truth is out there, there's nothing to be afraid of. You know that you're loved not for the image that you're projecting, but for who you really are, the authentic you. Joy gives us the freedom to live from the heart that Jesus gave us. And we do this, as we do this, we discover the increasing delight of becoming the people of God that he designed us to be. Wow, beautifully put. That's what joy is all about. Some of the action steps that we suggested is for each one of us to create 10 or to think of 10 joyful images or memories. Um, And the the definition of that was um, a memory where you're aware of the sensations that you had physically as you felt that. And so they wouldn't be memories that cause a sensation of anxiety or fear. No, they would be memories and images that uh, physically, as you relive those moments in your head, they bring warmth, they bring contentment, they bring peace, they bring joy, they bring, bring gratefulness. So there's that physical component of the memory. And the other part of that memory, which is huge, is that the memory reminds you of a connection that you felt with the Lord. And so come up with 10 memories, 10 images, and then name them, label them. And literally, when you're going through temptation or trial or suffering, literally meditating upon those memories has the ability physiologically to transform you and give you joy despite your circumstances. We've always said that joy is despite your circumstances, it's independent, but then it's kind of like, good luck, hope you can experience it, you know. How do we do it? You know, I'm in despair, I'm suffering, I'm hurting. That's a great practical way. Come up with 10, for me, one of those memories is Hume Lake and all the stuff God did in my life over the years. I mean, the birth of each of my children is definitely in there. My marriage is there. You know, the image of what it's going to be like of the second coming, that's, you know, come up with 10, label them, name them. And man, when you're struggling, just rehearse those and go, oh yeah, this is what it's all about. What I'm dealing with right now, No. This is it right here. That has the ability to transform us. The second thing we talked about besides joy was our community, our Hesed Agape community. Keep throwing those words out, but our unconditionally loving, grace-filled, merciful community. We learned that neuroscientists tell us, they inform us that our brain draws from our strongest relational attachments to grow our character and develop our identity. Who we love literally shapes who we are. Our brains are designed to use our attachments to form our character. So by living in an extended family, agape, hesed relationships, we put our brains into the perfect zone, the perfect place to be developed into Christ's image. A high hesed church a church that's loving and graceful and unconditionally loving, builds its life around these joyful relationships. New believers are immediately drawn into a community of love. Parents are shown how to build hesed in their marriages and their families. Attachments have priority. That's what we're talking about with discipleship. But of the four transformational catalysts, Hesed agape community is one of the toughest because it's not just something that we can teach more or drill in principles. It it involves what we said, the work of community, yielding, sacrificing, and imitating. Yielding because it's not just about us, it's about other people as well. We need to make room for others. Sacrificing because our needs aren't always of priority, but we have to consider the needs of others as well. 
and imitating. It's not just not being conformed to the world around me, but transformed by the renewing of my mind and by this community that reminds me of who I am in Christ and what it means to follow Him. We discussed the fact that, of course, we need good teaching, but we also need good examples. We need good images to follow. We make the mistake of thinking that teaching alone is sufficient, but our character is formed by imitating those to whom we're attached. That's why Hebrews 13.7 says, consider your spiritual leaders and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We need physical, tangible examples of people that are honoring God and, and obedient to Him and following Him. People older than us, more mature that we can learn from and follow after. How important that is. We talked about the fruit of this community. The fruit of this community, first of all, is shared experience. The work of being vulnerable with each other bears the fruit of invulnerability. As we are vulnerable and authentic and transparent with each other, together as we unite as a community, we're, we're impenetrable. We're, we are a force. You know, Ecclesiastes 4 talks about that. One can be easily powered, but not two. A cord of two or three strands is not easily broken. You know, if one falls down, the other can pick them up. Like, there's power in shared experience of community. How important that is. The burdens and joys are shared when we go through times of loss or illness or disruption. Others can lovingly come alongside of us and help us carry their, the load, help us process the pain. In a similar way, times of joy and celebration are intensified through our attachments with community. Think about you know, something as simple as recreation to something as achievements and accomplishments and milestones in life. You know, doing that alone or doing that with a community of people that love you, that are cheering with you and celebrating with you, the power of that. We talked about the shared strength of community, the fact that we're never alone and that Ecclesiastes passage that, you know, we're stronger united than we are alone. And then we talked about the, the shared beauty of community as well. And that goes all the way back to God creating us. We were created in the image of God, male and female, he created us. And so what we drew from that is that neither gender fully reflects the beauty of God. It takes both male and female to even approximate who God is. And so you think about the beauty of community reflected through our marriages and our families and our friendships. Our shared beauty is greater than our individual beauty. And oh, if our world can understand that. It's not, hey, look at me, aren't I just amazing, you know? My wife has a subscription to People magazine. She's had it for years, and we just got the magazine. This, the sexiest man alive on the earth, you know? I'm like, seriously? I don't even know who it was, but I'm like, really? What a joke. Like, if that was me, I'd be embarrassed. Like, you know, really? You know, what does it mean to be the best-looking person in the world? Or, you know, like, not even possible. But Shared beauty is so much more than individual, and we seem to be living in a world that's chasing after individual beauty. Look, hey, look at me. Look at how powerful I am, how, how beautiful I am, how accomplished I am. And as I said, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're all being formed and shaped into God's image. And so what does it mean collectively as a church to anticipate that, look forward to that? The third thing we talked about was group identity. 
Our group identity answers the question as followers of Jesus, what kind of people should we be? How do the people of God act? David preached this sermon. He talked about as we process and act upon this question, it involves a shift from head knowledge to heart knowledge. And and biblically, uh, spiritually, we call this sanctification, how God makes us into his image. The neuroscientists, again, tell us that through infancy and childhood, the brain is designed to develop individual identity through attachments with parents and with other caregivers. Around age 12, the brain undergoes a structural change that balances individual identity with group identity. And from this point on, our group identity is a key player in the formation of character. That's why you don't want your kids in their teen years starting to hang out with people that are a bad influence, because it's hugely impacting on their life. But on a positive note, for us spiritually, understanding our group identity, you know, adversely as bad company corrupts good morals, so also hanging out with believers that are constantly reinforcing God's truth and what it means to live a life of purity and a life that glorifies God, that has huge benefits. From this point on, our group identity is a key player in the formation of our character. We're formed by our strongest attachments and the shared identity of our community. Our character is revealed by how we act instinctively in our relational surroundings. And individually or alone, that's difficult because left to our own willpower, we all slip, we all fall, we all make mistakes. But again, our group identity can help give us a picture, a model, an image of what it looks like to do that together and to do that successfully. That's the good news, is that our, our, our automatic responses to distress can actually be trained by our group identity. Our community builds strong character identity by speaking regularly to us about who we are as the people of God. It reminds us when we slip and fall, hey, this isn't you. Remember, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people that were called out of darkness into light to proclaim his excellencies, and just reminding each other of that. Jesus essentially did this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. He said, the people of God are people who take God's commands seriously, who reconcile as quickly as possible who are careful to obey God in our sexuality, to remain faithful to our spouses, to keep our word, to love our enemies, and even to pray for them, who seek to be rewarded by God instead of people, and who forgive others because we have been forgiven so much by God. That, that's kind of a summary of the Sermon on the Mount there. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul reminds us who the people of God are. They're people that walk in love just as Jesus did because it's a sweet perfume to God. There there are people who are careful with their sexuality and their money because these can easily corrupt us. A people who are careful with words and jokes, who diligently are seeking what pleases God, who avoid and expose the works of darkness, who use their time wisely on earth, making the most of every opportunity. Not a people who get drunk, but a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who sing to each other and even make up songs that connect us to God and to each other. And above all things, we're a people that give thanks in all things. As you're reading through Scripture, it's like 
It's a description of who we are in Christ and who we are to be. Well, the fourth and final thing that we talked about, the fourth catalyst of transformation beyond joy, beyond Hesed Agape community, beyond group identity, was healthy correction. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is foolish. Proverbs 15, 32, those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. Neuroscientists inform us that our character is formed by drawing from two libraries. So from the time that we're growing up to adulthood, we're constantly drawing from two libraries. One, our life history of observed responses of how to act. So a lot of that comes from our culture and our surroundings. This is how people act when they're in this situation. And that can send conflicting messages. But the second is the values of our people, the people that we love and respect who represent our group identity. And hopefully that library that we draw from trumps the first library so that we're not getting this conflicting message of what it means to act or how it means to act in times of crisis or suffering, but we're getting that main message from our, our group identity. And as we said, it's true that bad choices are involved in producing bad character, but if we want to improve our behavior, we have to change our values. Otherwise, it's just behavior modification, you know. If you want to change your behavior, you got to change your values. And this is done through stored examples and images of how people act, our group identity. Think about it. That's what, that's what the whole Hebrews chapter 11 is about. Consider this person. Consider that person. Consider what they did in this situation. Consider what they did in that situation. I imitate that. Follow that example. Because these people have run the race successfully. Yeah, they had hiccups along the way. They had slips, but they got back on track. And they modeled for us what it means to run the race of faith successfully. And they testify that the race can be run and that you can do it. So follow their example. That's Hebrews 11. And then it goes right into Hebrews 12. And we do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Powerful stuff. We discussed probably one of the most difficult things in the series, that healthy correction involves shame. And some of us are like, shame is a bad thing, shame can never be good. But we differentiated between toxic shame and healthy shame. The, the, the interesting thing about our brains is that we do not change unless we're uncomfortable or we experience pain. We will keep on doing something until it just becomes undesirable to do it because it brings discomfort or it brings pain. And shame is key in that. But there's a huge difference between toxic shame and healthy shame. Toxic shame communicates the message that we're bad, we're flawed, we're broken, without offering us a way out of our, our failures. It leaves us in our shame with no solution or no help. Healthy shame, on the other hand, doesn't leave us alone. It communicates the message, I love you. I believe that you are better than you're acting right now. That you're not acting in your true identity right now. Let me remind you who you really are in Christ. Let me remind you of the person he's made you into, how the people of God act, how the children of God behave in this situation. And friends, that, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's why Jesus came. That's all about redemption, the power of God to transform. 
Healthy correction is always an invitation to return to our true identity and to start acting like ourselves again. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know, God made him a new new shame to be shame on our behalf, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. And he gave us this ministry of reconciliation where we are begging and pleading with others, come back to God, be reconciled with God, come back into relationship with God. That, that's our role of drawing people back. And our community helps us regulate the shame because if we're all vulnerable, we're all broken, and we're all working, then we don't stand out as the only flawed person in the bunch. We're all in the same boat, how powerful that is. So I want to wrap this up today with some action steps and some practical things to follow up. We, we talked about prayer. We, we all greatly underestimate prayer. We, we do and we do and we do, and when all that fails, then we get on our knees and we pray. But prayer, how powerful that is. Praying that God would give us receptive hearts to be able to listen to each other, to be able to learn from each other, to not have competition and think, oh, what they're doing makes me look bad. And no, you know, just take off the masks. Let's get real. Let's get transparent. And let's pray for that receptive, open heart to respond to healthy correction in our lives. And as we correct other people, again, let's not do it from an error of superiority or self-righteousness, like, I got it all together, so now I'll help you. No, I'm as flawed as you are. Maybe my areas are different than yours, but we both are in need of God's grace. We're both in need of his healing, of his redemption, his restoration. But let's do it together as two, you know, crippled people going along. Finding a friend or a community that we can confide in, how huge that is. Some of you still are doing it alone. You're not in a small group. You don't have anybody that you can process what you're learning on Sunday morning or even your devotions during the week. There's value in that. Don't try and do it alone. Find other people that can share in that, and, and as many as you can find, because one person is not enough. We all need multiple people for that. Um. Another way that we can apply this is, as we talked about last week, drawing or leading other people out of shame, <laughs> particularly people that we have put into shame by the words and our own actions. You know, We can all think of people in our life that, yeah, they're, they're living in shame right now, and I'm responsible for that because I said something really hurtful to them or my actions communicated something, and they're, they're spiraling right now. Of course we need to go after people like that because our own responsibility. But apart from that, drawing people out, that's what God has called us to do. One of my favorite authors and pastors growing up was John Stott, kind of a Reformed theologian. I love what he says, and I thought this was good as we close. He said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, but I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life that Jesus lived and telling me to live a life like that because Jesus could do it, but I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like he lived. For friends, the reality is the spirit of God lives in us. And so we can together live a life like he lived, only through the Holy Spirit. 
But that's what we're to be about, and that's what we're to encourage each other. And we are to invite others along the way who don't know him yet and invite them to come and experience true life and true joy that only he offers. Let's pray. Father God, we've learned a lot in this series, and we pray, as James said, that we would not be like people who look in a mirror and see the truth and then walk away and don't respond to the truth. God, we want to be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. So we pray that you would help us to put this into practice and not just, not just the fun stuff, God, but all of the stuff. Many of us, including myself, have areas of shame in our life that we're still processing and we're doing it in unhealthy ways. And God, we need to process our shame, but in healthy ways, redemptive ways. And God, that involves being vulnerable and reaching out with others and not doing it ourselves. That involves being part of a community that can constantly remind us of who we are in you. And God, my prayer is that that's what you would increasingly make CBC. That we would not be a place where we just come and learn stuff, but we would be a community that models this and nurtures this powerfully as we impact this world, Lord God. And God, we pray that we could experience your joy, the joy that comes from knowing you, the joy that comes from having that image of you being delighted to see us, delighted by our presence, and that we might communicate that same joy to others, to everyone that we meet. Lord God, as we talk about gratitude next week, show us how vital that is in this whole process as we lead into Thanksgiving and as we prepare for Christmas and celebrating your birth and all that you did and all that that means. Lord God, as always, we acknowledge that every gift and everything that we own and possess is from you. Even the health that we have to, to work jobs and to make money comes from you. And so we give back to you today, whether here physically at church or online, Lord God, we ask that you would bless the money that we give and multiply it to meet the needs of this church and the needs of our community partners, as well as our missionaries that we support around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.